Are you going to say go? Someone going to tell me to go? and I'm so happy to be here to worship with you this morning wherever you are I hope you'll uh, these songs will minister to you this morning everyone needs compassion love that's never failing let mercy fall on me Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a savior, the hope of nations. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. So take me as you find me, all my fears and failures. Forever, author. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Robin and team. Oh, man, it's good to be with you this morning. And it is really beginning to feel a little bit like Christmas. And I know that I've needed it. I look forward to this time every year. And as much as I love being able to go to the beach and the water being warm during summer, this is still my favorite time of the year. And there's just something about driving down the street and Christmas lights and having an excuse to actually light a fire in the fireplace. I love the smell of cinnamon and peppermint ice cream. Uh, And then for me, my favorite moment of the Christmas season, at least in the beginning, in the preparation part, is the day that we put up our Christmas tree. Typically, we do that traditionally. It's on Thanksgiving Day. After we've had that meal, we come home, we're all full, and I'm like, all right, kids, let's work it off by grabbing the the Christmas tree. We have a fake one. Did it a few years ago. Grab it out of the garage, pull it up. We stick it in the living room, and it just provides this warm light to the whole house. That's when we typically do it is Thanksgiving Day. This year, however, all bets are off, right? Like pretty much Christmas didn't have to stay in its lane. It could come whenever we wanted. And so for me, it was about a a week before Thanksgiving. I decided I wanted to surprise my family with our Christmas tree. And this year I decided I wanted to step it up a notch with the decor, right? I wanted the decorations to be a little bit more symbolic of the year we've been in. So I decorated it with our most valuable possession, our toilet paper, And um, yeah, we had fun with it. It lasted all of about an hour before my wife forced me to put our traditional decorations up. Uh, But I I just love having the tree up. Talking about traditions, traditionally this time of year, we actually dive into the Christmas story and we spend several weeks preparing room in our hearts for Christ through the Christmas story. But traditionally, we will look at the Gospel of Luke, because that's the one we're most familiar with. That's the one where the angel comes and visits Mary. That's the one where there's a census, and and so that's what makes Mary and Joseph have to go to Bethlehem. That's the one with the angels revealing themselves to the shepherds and the shepherds showing up. It's the one that Linus, remember, he he quoted in Charlie Brown's Christmas uh, special. So that's the one we all know. It's the one that we traditionally lean into. It's the one we're familiar with. And there's something beautiful and wonderful about familiarity, especially in a year as unfamiliar as this one. And so we are going to look at the the Christmas story as told by Luke, but we're not going to do it leading up to it. We're going to save that for Christmas Eve. And let me just share with you really briefly what Christmas Eve is going to look like. Because in a year where we're not able to gather in our our building, there's a part of me that doesn't want to let go of our Christmas Eve candlelight service. That is something that I I treasure, and I don't want to let it go. So we're going to do it one of two ways, and you can choose what fits best for you. We are going to do the Christmas Eve service live-streamed early on on Christmas Eve, probably around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it'll be available on our website and on YouTube all the way through Christmas Eve, all the way through Christmas Day. So if you're gathering with your family and you want to join with us, you can do that at any point. But we don't want to let go of gathering together and passing the flame and reminding ourselves that the light is always shining brightest in the darkness. 
And this year, of all times, we need to pass that flame. So we're going to do so out in our parking lot. From 4.30 to 5.30 on Christmas Eve, we're going to do a parking lot Christmas Eve candlelight service. I invite you to come, invite you to bring your friends, dress warmly. It'll probably be a little chilly. Make sure you bring a face mask. And we are going to worship Jesus together for about an hour. Okay, so we are going to get to the Gospel of Luke. We are going to look at the Christmas story as told by Luke then. But this year's different. And so the reality is there's two different tellings of the Christmas story, Luke and Matthew. And I can, I've got to be honest with you. I've never really spent any time in a series looking at Matthew's articulation of the Christmas story. And so this year felt like, because everything else is thrown out the window, let's try something new. Let's look at Matthew's articulation of the Christmas story. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to begin right here in verse 1. Matthew's Christmas story begins with these words. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And at this point, we are all beginning to lose our focus. We, if you're like me, you either just kind of gut it out and you go through it, but you're on autopilot and you're not really listening, or you just skip all the way past this genealogy and you get to, you know, Joseph, you know, hearing about Jesus coming and all that kind of stuff. You skip to the, the narrative part. And we do this because I think in, in our minds we go, I don't really care who was the father of whom. Like, it really doesn't make a difference to me. But Matthew felt like it was important enough that he began his entire gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, which leaves us to ask the question, well, why? Matthew, why is this so important? And to answer that question, we need to remind ourselves of who Matthew was writing to. He was writing to Jews who were waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for their Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer, to come and to redeem them from the brokenness of the world. They thought to redeem them from Rome, that kind of occupying force. We know that he was coming to redeem them from something much more insidious than simply a nation that was kind of over them. He was coming to redeem them from sin. But they were still waiting for their Messiah. And so because Matthew is writing to Jews, he takes into consideration the kind of questions they're going to ask. Because the Jews knew two things. They knew that God had promised that, God, that, that he would bless Abraham and through Abraham bless all the nations. They were sure that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. But they were also certain that God had promised King David that he would always have his throne established, that, the, that there would be a king on the throne of Israel from David's line. And so they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And so the very first question that Matthew wants to address right out of the gate to his audience is that yes, Jesus comes from the line of David. And that is what he does by starting with the genealogy. He begins from Abraham and he takes it all the way through David down to Jesus. 
Okay, that makes sense. We can understand it from that perspective. But what doesn't make sense when you read this genealogy is that Matthew chooses to insert some names that don't need to be in here. You see, he could have, he, he's doing it from the men, from the father's side. So he could have just started with Abraham and gone on down the list of all the fathers between Abraham and Jesus. But he inserts five women's name into this list. Now, Mary makes sense. Mary's the final women's name, right? And she's the mother of Jesus, really instrumental in this whole thing. But there's four other women that Matthew includes that he didn't need to include in this genealogy. But what's most surprising about it is the four women that he chooses to include. Of them, three of them are Gentiles, and two of them, their story is so awkward, so, it's almost like a black eye on the gospel message that you just go, Matthew, if you were trying to prove to people that Jesus is the Messiah, why would you ever lean into these four stories? Let me show you what I mean. Let's go to verse three. We read, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, chances are you may not have heard the name Tamar, or you may not remember her story. Suffice it to say, it's the kind of story that is not fit for Christmas. It's not something I'm going to go into detail in here, but if you want to read about it, you can go to Genesis chapter 38. You can read it yourself. Tamar was a Gentile. She had a very difficult life. She had to make some very difficult decisions. And quite honestly, it was one of those embarrassing moments in the history of the, the line of Jesus. And yet, Matthew goes out of his way to say Tamar was a link in the chain that led to Jesus. But she's not the only one. We read in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, here's a name you might be familiar with. Rahab, like Tamar, was a Gentile. She lived in the walled city of Jericho where she worked as a lady of the night or a prostitute, right? That was her job. And yet, Matthew reminds us that Rahab was a part, a link in the chain that led from Abraham through David to Jesus. She's not the only one. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There's an entire book about Ruth, so hopefully you know her name. But she, like the other two, was a Gentile. Her story is, is not necessarily as embarrassing, but certainly you kind of go, well, why do you need to mention that she's a part of it? And, and that's not even the most awkward one, because the most awkward person is coming up here. We keep reading. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Yes, are we? we made it to David. We're good. We can establish that. Now we just need to get to Jesus. But listen to how he continues. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, some of you might be going, who was Uriah's wife? But to a Jew, they would have known immediately who he's talking about. He's talking about Bathsheba. And you know the story, right? This is one of the low points in David's life. He, he, he looks out of his, his room. He sees a gal bathing on, the, sea, on the, the roof of her home. Yes, she is already married to one of his mighty men, one of his closest friends, but he doesn't care. He invites her over. 
he, he gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover it up. And when he can't cover it up, he has one of his closest friends, one of his mighty men, killed in battle so that he can have Bathsheba as his wife. Certainly a low point in the story of David's life. Something you would not want to emphasize. And yet Matthew not only says that she's a part of it, but he doesn't even say her name. Instead, he says the Uriah's wife twisting the knife, reminding them of who she belonged to before David. Now, all of this should lead us to ask the question, why, Matthew? What is your point? If all you wanted to do was show that Jesus came from Abraham and the line of David, you could do that with the guy's names. You didn't need to include any of the women's names, particularly the four that you chose. And if you wanted to include some women's names, there's tons of them you could have chosen. How about Sarah? How about Rachel? There's some amazing women of faith that you could have included, but you didn't. Why these four? I've been grappling with that question for a little bit. And I, I feel the reason that Matthew included those particular women's names goes out of his way to remind us that they are part of the chain that leads from Abraham through David to Jesus is because Matthew is trying to show his audience, well, Matthew has lived with Jesus, lived with him, journeyed with him for three years. He saw the way that Jesus went out of his way to move towards people that the Jews would move away from really, really quickly. He went out of his way to love people that were declared unlovable, to touch people that were declared untouchable. And Matthew began to recognize they weren't just blights on the story, they were the whole point. Jesus came for people like them. Matthew was aware of the fact that Jesus didn't just come for people like them. He wants us to know that he came from people like them. Jesus didn't just come for sinners, he came from sinners. He doesn't just redeem the unredeemable, which he does. But he takes those redeemed people and he says, now I have a new, renewed purpose. You get to be a participant in the restoration of all things. In this grand narrative of God moving towards his people, you get to play a part. You have a purpose. You get to be an ambassador of this. I think the reason why Matthew goes out of his way to share these women to remind us that these women are a part of this story is because this is Matthew's story as well. These gals are his kind of gals. They're his kind of people. Matthew shares his story uh, in Matthew chapter 9. So go ahead and turn a few chapters to the right. Again, the reason I believe that Matthew includes these women in his genealogy is he is making the point right up front that Jesus came for people like them and people like him. Because this is his story as much as it's theirs. We read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, that as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Now, I know that in our day, people who work for the IRS aren't all that popular. 
right? We don't love it when we get a letter from the IRS. I have, to this point in my life, never met anybody who has bragged that one of their family members works for the IRS. If you've got somebody, that's great. You've never told me for some reason, right? But in Matthew's day, tax collectors were in a whole different category, a whole different level of hatred. Because remember, the taxes were being collected for Rome. Rome wanted to impose a tax over all of the Jews whom they were kind of overseeing. But they recognized that it, they didn't know how the, the Jews might hide their money or how they might lie about stuff. And so they came up with an ingenious way to collect taxes. They would hire a Jew to collect taxes from his fellow countrymen. But rather than paying that Jew, they said, you can collect taxes. This is what we expect. This is the level. And anything you collect above that will be your take-home pay. And so Jewish people like Matthew would not only ensure that Rome got their cut, but that he would add additional taxes on there for himself to line his own pockets. And if they balked at it, if they refused, he could just point to one of the Roman centurions and say, hey, I have a problem here. Can you help me out with this particular person? So tax collectors in Matthew's day were viewed as thieves, as traitors to their own people, and is lower than the worst sinners. And that's who Matthew was. And so we read when he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. I'm sure Matthew didn't feel all that great about himself, but, you know, at least he had a lot of money and a place to go home to. And Jesus came up to him. And when he looks at Matthew, I, I suspect that it would have been off-putting to Matthew because Jesus walks up with his retinue of disciples behind him, and he probably had a crowd already that was gathering around. Because There's Jesus. There's that rabbi that everybody's been talking about. And Jesus walks up to Matthew, not with a look of disgust and disdain on his face. That's what Matthew, I'm sure, was used to seeing from Jews who would come up. I hate you. You steal from your own people. You're a traitor to your own kind. But that's not the look that Jesus had on his face when he walked up to Matthew. I suspect that Jesus had a look of, of love, compassion, kindness. A look that Matthew was certainly not used to seeing from anybody, let alone his fellow countrymen. But if that surprised him, what Jesus said surprised him even more. Because Jesus said these two words, follow me. Those two words are more than just, hey, let's go for a walk. Let's, let's have a talk. Those two words carried the gravity, a weightiness, because those were the words that a rabbi would use of a particularly exemplary disciple to say, I want to invite you into a formal discipleship relationship. I want you to go where I go, live where I live, eat what I eat, do what I do, and through your proximity to me, you will be shaped into a reflection of me so that one day you can do what I've been doing. One day you can take other disciples and teach them what I am going to teach you. You would expect that from some of the cream of the crop, but Matthew is a tax collector, and Jesus is inviting him into a formal discipleship relationship. 
Now, that would have been shocking to Matthew. That would have been shocking to all of the disciples behind him. It would have been shocking to anybody within earshot of it because this simply isn't done, and especially somebody like him. But if there's one thing we know about Matthew is that he was no dummy. And when he is presented with something that he truly does not deserve, he knows how to make that mental calculation. Let's see here. Continue to rip off my own countrymen and be called a traitor and a thief and be alone and despised by anybody but my own kind or become a disciple of this rabbi that everybody's talking about. Yeah, there was no question. This was the pearl of grace price. And so he got up from his table and he followed Jesus in a heartbeat. And in that moment, the entire trajectory of Matthew's life changed. He went from being a thief who fleeced his own people to line his own pockets to becoming a fisher of men and an ambassador of the good news that Jesus was going to plant in his heart. We keep reading in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with him and his disciples. I love how they just kind of go, tax collectors and sinners, they're pretty much synonymous, right? And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, I'm sure with just indignation dripping in their voices, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like, doesn't he know who these people are? Doesn't he care? Upon hearing this, Jesus said, hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now for Matthew and his fellow tax collectors sitting in the room that night when Jesus confronted those Pharisees, I'm sure that his words would have been like water on a parched heart. It would have been overwhelming to hear that he cared for them enough that he would stand up for them against these leaders of the religious establishment there in Jerusalem. I'm sure that he would have been overwhelmed by the grace of it, that he, he desires mercy, not sacrifice, because remember, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, were all about what are the different rungs of the ladder that people have to do? What kind of sacrifices do they need to make in order to curry God's favor? They say, no, 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 you've missed the heart of God. It's not about doing things to earn your standing with God. It's about mercy. And here's something that probably flew over those Pharisees' heads that night. When Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm sure that in their minds, they were thinking, oh, he's come for them, not for us. What they failed to, what they failed to recognize is there wasn't a single person other than Jesus who was righteous in that room that night. None of them had a leg to stand on. None of them could have beat their chest in front of God and say, hey, I'm good enough for your love. They certainly had tried. They did everything they could to be good enough for him. But Jesus came to a world that was so completely corrupted by human rebelliousness and by an, an innate need to just live any way that we want and do anything that we want even if it's contrary to the heart of our God, that Jesus came to redeem every single person on this planet 
although some didn't recognize the need for their own redemption, like those Pharisees, I would imagine. So why does Matthew include these gals in his genealogy? Because it's his story too. He doesn't deserve the grace of God to be called a disciple, to be called a child of God, to be called beloved. He doesn't deserve it. And yet Jesus moved towards him. And that's why the fact that Jesus would call somebody like Matthew, a tax collector, that the fact that Jesus would use somebody like Matthew, the fact that he would use somebody like Tamar, use somebody like Rahab, somebody like Ruth, somebody like Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, the fact that he would use somebody like them, the fact that he would use somebody like you and like me, this is what makes the Christmas story such good news of great joy for everyone. Because it is a reminder to us right at the very beginning that God doesn't just come for sinners. He comes from sinners. He doesn't just redeem the unredeemable. He uses those whom he has redeemed to advance his kingdom purposes. And it's good news for us, just as it was for Matthew, because it means that we don't have to keep trying to curry God's favor. We don't have to keep trying to be good enough. He makes us good enough. He loves us so much that he has pursued us. The true amazing part of the Christmas story that really comes out for me in the genealogy of Jesus, and as we continue in Matthew's Christmas story, we're going to find just how unlikely the characters that he chooses to focus on are. The truly remarkable part of this is how he uses unworthy people to advance his kingdom purposes because we, we like Matthew, we like Rahab, we like Tamar, we like Bathsheba, we are unworthy. And yet he calls us worthy. We who have, are far off are invited to come near and to have relationship. And that's good news. Even more amazingly, he says, now I want you to go and I want you to be a vessel of hope to a world that desperately needs it. I want you to carry the light that has been kindled in your heart. Uh, the light of hope that radiates in the darkness. And there's a lot of darkness around us right now. We get to be like, like the clay bowl that holds a candle. We get to be like the package that holds the greatest Christmas gift ever given. We guys get to be that packaging. And I'll tell you, it's not about the packaging, even though some of you have presents under the tree and all you can see right now are the boxes. All we've got right now are a pile of boxes in our bedroom and they're ugly. They have Amazon stamped all over them. We gotta keep our kids out because otherwise they're gonna know exactly what they're getting. Ethan, Grayson, if you're watching right now, stay out right? But it's not about the box, is it? It's about what's in the box. Jesus 
and what he came to do is the greatest gift, undeserved gift in the history of mankind. That God would deal with our sins so that we could be restored back into relationship with him, that's good news. And many of us have tasted and seen that, and that's wonderful, I'm glad. But may I remind us that simply being restored back into relationship isn't the end of the story. If that was the case, he could just zap us into heaven the moment we say, I do. I will follow you. No, he says, no, I want to invite you to now take the hope that has been kindled in your heart and carry it into the darkness of your spheres of influence, into your home where some of your kids are resistant, where your parents are resistant, into your neighborhoods where you're surrounded by people who are trying to find solace in lots of things. And there's a lot of us who are running to a lot of things right now just to try to find some consolation for our heart and for the ache of this world that feels like it's off its axis. And right now he's looking at us through a genealogy and saying, you have a part to play in this, in this Christmas restoration. You get to be the packaging that carries this light into your sphere of influence because this is good news of great joy, not just for you, but for everybody. So my prayer for us, and by the way, let me, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. There may be some of you listening right now for whom Jesus is far off. Maybe he doesn't feel all that close because you are so overwhelmed by your circumstances that you just feel like God has left the building if there ever was a God. And there may be some of you who are listening who God is far off, Jesus is far off because you have literally been holding him at arm's length. You're like, hey, you know what? I know all of this stuff. I know that some people believe it. I know my parents believe it, but quite honestly, I prefer to be in control. And I will, if I'm gonna come to God, I'm gonna come to him on my own terms and I will earn it at some point. But right now I know I don't deserve it. And you'd be right, you don't deserve it. And neither do I, neither do any of us. If it was about deserving it, nobody would be declared righteous. Nobody would be redeemed. Nobody would be restored back into relationship. And that is why this is a gift and not something that is a payment for effort rendered. Because we are undeserving people whom God declares to be beloved despite our imperfections. And he's saying, stop running, just come home. Accept this gift, not because you earned it, but because I love you this much. Just come home. Accept this invitation, the same invitation that Matthew heard when he was sitting in the epicenter of his rebellion, surrounded by the money that he had stolen from his fellow countrymen, surrounded by his shame, in that moment, Jesus inserted himself into his life and he said, follow me. And the same invitation is given to you. Don't try to earn it. You couldn't. And please, don't push it away because you don't feel that you don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. And yet he offers it to you anyway. And so I would encourage you simply to do what we do with any gift that is offered to us. Accept it and say thank you. 
And there's, there's nothing magical about doing that. It's, simply, it's, it's as simple as saying, Jesus, I accept. I want to follow you. I don't know what that means. And if you are, are in this place and you're going, I don't know what that means to say, I, I accept it. I don't know what it means to follow Jesus. Please don't keep this to yourself. Let, let a family member know that calls Jesus their Lord. Let them know. Let me know. You can email Lee and, or Jeff, Jeff and myself at pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Let us know because we want to be able to walk with you. We want to pray with you. But it's as simple as simply saying, I do. Jesus, I accept this gift of grace. I choose to follow you. I choose not just to have you save me, but for you to be the Lord of my life. I want to follow in your footsteps so that your values shape my values. Your heart shapes the way that my heart beats so that I could begin to see the people around me the way you do. Help yourself to my life. And what follows then, because that's not the finish line in any way, what follows then is a lifetime of learning. I I can assure you, all four of the Gospels remind us that all of the disciples who heard those words, follow me, did so imperfectly. They stumbled over and over and over. And Jesus loved them in spite of it and moved towards them in spite of it. The message for us this morning is that God uses imperfect people. He redeems the unredeemable. And then he gives us unredeemables that have been redeemed a restored purpose to be his ambassadors of hope to all of the other unredeemables that he wants to redeem around us. So let that be our focus this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the imperfect people that are a part of your family Christmas tree, that unbroken chain from Abraham through David to you. I'm grateful that you didn't just come for sinners, but that you came from sinners and that you call people like Matthew and like us to be a part of your restorative purpose and plans. Would you help yourself to our lives? Would you open our eyes to opportunities to be your ambassadors? Would you terraform our hearts, shape it into a reflection of your heart? And you know the weeds that are in there. You know the brokenness and the selfishness and the self-centeredness. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would reign upon our hearts and restore a pliability to the soil of our hearts so that fruit of the Spirit could be produced of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. We pray, Father, that the hope that was kindled 2,000 years ago would radiate in our lives and in our spheres of influence so that you get the glory, not so that we get the glory. It's all about you. We're just the packaging that gets to carry the greatest gift ever given. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
We're going to end with a couple of songs about joy based on that amazing message of redemption. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of eternal gladness, fill us with the
couple of things. One, there's a couple of you right now that I know are in the hospital. Pearl, I am so glad that you're with us right now. Know that your church family is praying for you as you are coming out from this right now. And we just pray that God would open your lungs and that you would be able to breathe more easily right now. And Kelly, I know you took a shot to the face last night in your baseball game and that you've got a concussion. And we are just praying that God would heal you, that there would be no uh, that there would be no lasting impact, that you would heal quickly. And I know that there are many others of you right now that are under the weather, not necessarily COVID-related, but just colds and cancers and other brokenness of this world. The reminder for us today is that God enters into the brokenness of our world. And he moves towards us and he gives us hope in the midst of a season that doesn't feel all that hopeful. He gives us joy when we certainly don't feel like it fits our circumstances. May we rest in him. May we keep our eyes fixed on him. And may we be the kind of people who with joy and hope and peace and love move towards the people in our life and say, let me share with you why I have hope right now. And guys, if there's something you're carrying heavily, we want to be able to carry it with you. We want to pray for you. You can send us any of your prayer requests to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We want to pray with you. We want to know how we can come alongside of you. And if you want to give, you can do so at our website, lighthousecommunity.com. You can give on there as a declaration of your trust in God. 
because ultimately that is also an act of worship. But just know we love you, and even though we may not be able to gather together, we are family because of what he did for us, because we are all a part of his family. We get to be family, and for that I'm truly, truly grateful. Have a wonderful week.